This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. In question, and in chapter 3, all the way through the middle of chapter, what he calls the truth of the gospel. You may remember that he summed up the truth of the gospel as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He did that in chapter 2 and verse 16. If you look there, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the heart and soul of the Christian message, the heart and soul of the gospel, justification by faith alone. And what is justification? Justification is the declaration of God, God the judge, that he considers a person to be not guilty or righteous in his sight. A judge doesn't make a person righteous. The judge declares a person righteous. Justification is that gift of God's grace. It's given to us once for all. We'll never be more justified than the moment that we are justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he is defending this. This is the teaching of Scripture. In Acts chapter 16, a man falls before Paul and says, What must I do to be saved? And what Paul says to him is, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now, why is Paul having to defend the gospel that he has been preaching? You remember that there were these uh, agitators, uh, these false teachers, Judaizers as we call them, who were Jewish men who believed that faith in Jesus was the right thing, that Jesus is the Messiah, but they believed that faith in Jesus wasn't enough. That if you truly want to be justified, if you truly want to belong, you need to supplement your faith in Jesus with good deeds. That you need to add to your faith in Jesus as the Savior uh, the works of the law. And male circumcision was the flashpoint. That was the main thing that they were uh, putting upon these Galatian churches. And so last week we saw that Paul is defending the gospel of justification by faith alone, and he began with the experiential component of the Christian faith in verses 1 through 5. He said, it all sums up really in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith, you see? You see, because possessing the Spirit in your soul, for Paul, that's the mark of having been justified. That's the mark of being a true Christian. Do you have the Holy Spirit within you? And how did you receive it? He knows they have the Spirit. He says, how did you receive the Spirit? Was that because some of you were circumcised? Is that because you began to keep the law of Moses? Or was it that you received the Spirit by hearing with faith? Hearing the gospel accompanied with faith. And Paul knows that's the answer. For Paul, therefore, remember... The mark of belonging, the mark of being justified, the mark of being a genuine Christian. It's not how religious you are. It's not circumcision. It's not 
It's not keeping any sort of religious rite, or we would say today, it's not water baptism, it's not church attendance. The mark of being a genuine Christian is what? Is having received the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit into your soul. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 10, remember Paul there says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There's no other way. There's no either or. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. And down in verse 15 in Romans 8, the Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption. In other words, the Spirit is that pledge, that, that evidence that we truly have been adopted into the family of God, that we belong. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, I read this last week, Paul says, in him, that's in Christ, he's talking to Christians, he's talking to you and me as well, if you're a believer this morning. He said, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, you heard, whenever that was, you heard the gospel. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's true of everyone who's a Christian. We said last week, we may hear the gospel dozens of times. That was my experience. I heard the gospel many times. But there was only one moment when at first, then, I heard with faith. And at that moment, by the grace of God, I was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That is, he is the pledge. He is that down payment of what lies ahead for believers, which is more than this life. It's going through the grave and looking forward to life after death with God and then ultimately to resurrection in the end. And so Paul began right there last week. How does he defend the gospel? He defends it with this argument uh, from experience, and that is absolutely valid because that is what every Christian will experience. But now he wants to anchor his defense in something more foundational. He wants to anchor his defense, and he wants to make sure that he anchors their faith and our faith in Scripture. In Scripture. And why would that be? Because Scripture not experience, is the ultimate authority, is the ultimate arbiter in matters having to do with knowing God and the Christian life. We may misinterpret our experience, and we don't all experience things in the same way or to the same degree. And so scripture judges our experience. It's not the other way. Our experience can't judge what God says, but Scripture, what God says, is the judge of our experience. And so now Paul begins to defend his gospel from Scripture. And six times in verses 6 through 14, he will quote a different Old Testament passage. So he is rooting now the defense of the gospel of justification by faith of all uh, alone in the Old Testament, which was the scripture that Paul would have been referring to. And the first witness he brings out, his key witness, is Abraham. And John Stott, uh, who's now with the Lord, he said this was a strategic masterstroke <laughs> to bring out Abraham as his first key witness. Why? Because he's using, 
He's using, in, in Abraham, he's using the very beginning of the scriptures of the Pentateuch, of the law of Moses. He uses the law to show the scripture has always taught what he is saying, that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. We don't know exactly what these uh, uh, Judaizers and agitators were saying, but by virtue of what Paul says here, we can imagine that they were, uh, certainly they were appealing to Moses, they were appealing to the law of Moses, and, 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 and maybe they even went as far as appealing to Abraham and said things such as this. Listen, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be right with God, you need to also be circumcised as your men, and you need to keep the Sabbath and so forth, as Abraham was at first, and then as later Moses commanded. And so it's a masterstroke that Paul goes all the way back to their hero, to Abraham, Father Abraham, and he, and he uses him as the first key witness for justification by faith alone. And so they may have been saying, if you want to be a true son of Abraham, then you need to be circumcised like Abraham was eventually and as Moses commanded him. And so Paul is answering this question in essence, who are the true sons of Abraham? Who are the true sons of Abraham? Because they're the ones who would be justified. They're the ones who are in, as it were, right, who belong to the people of God. Now, before we look at what Paul says here, I want to say a couple things about this. First of all, what is, what, what, what is meant by being called a son of Abraham, and why would that matter? Well, first of all, first of all, let me say that son, son applies to both men and women. It applies both to boys and girls. The translators at some points could translate it children, but sometimes they translate it sons, and, and sometimes the word for son is present. And the reason to apply the term son to both men and women is because in their culture, in that, the time in which Paul lived, son, sonship was closely tied with inheritance. It was, it, was a fa it was part of the fabric of their life in the ancient world, and particularly amongst Jewish people. Son was closely tied with inheritance. The father's inheritance went to the firstborn son. And so sons is a collective concept uh, applying to both men and women because it is saying that the blessing of inheritance belongs to anyone who is has faith like the faith of Abraham, whether you're a male or female, boy or girl. And Paul will drive this point home a little bit later in Galatians chapter 4. In verse 6 and 7, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, 7, I'm looking at Ephesians 4. Here we go. He says, because you are sons. Now he's writing to the Christians there. Because you are sons, he's talking to who? The congregation, men and women. Because you are sons, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, an heir through God. So first of all, what does it mean to be called a son of Abraham? Well, son, first of all, is closely tied with the concept of inheritance. And then secondly, the scriptures can use the term son in various ways. I'm only mentioned too, uh, it, it can use son in the most literal sense, right? 
to refer to what? An immediate male biological child, right? The Gospel of Luke says Elizabeth gave birth to a son. And what did that mean? She had a boy. That's all it meant. <laughs> she gave birth to a son. The scripture uses son that way, but the scripture also uses son in a different way. In the ancient world, if a person was characterized by a particular trait, something about their character, that person would be called the son of X, whatever that character trait is. We have lots of examples, don't we? Like, you, you know in the story in the Gospels that the Lord Jesus uh, had two disciples, James and John, and what did he call them? He called them the sons of thunder. <laughs> Would love to see why that was the case, but <laughs> the sons of thunder, he says. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that unbelievers are the sons of disobedience, children of wrath, and so forth. Barnabas, Paul's great friend, his name means son of encouragement. And so Paul is using son here in that sense here. He's using it in that second way. Who are the true sons of Abraham? Those who are characterized by the faith of Abraham. Those are the true sons of Abraham. They, verse 9, those who are of faith, they are the ones who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So as we begin then to look at these verses, I just want to show you the structure. It's very easy, and it'll help us just make our way through it. He begins with an Old Testament citation, and then he draws an inference. And then a second Old Testament citation, and he draws a second inference, right? And so the first one, the first uh, citation in verse 6 comes from Genesis 15, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, the inference he draws from that is verse 7, know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So what is the point that Paul's making here? He's saying this, the sons of Abraham are those who have faith like Abraham. Not faith plus something else, but those who have faith like Abraham. Now, verse 6, you know, begins uh, with this connected word, just as Abraham believed God. And that's, uh, it's, it's hard to tell whether that was concluding the ideas of verses 1 through 5, and that's why they put a question mark at the end of verse 6, or is this beginning something new? Well, it's functioning as both. Verse 6 is a hinge that connects the faith of Abraham to the primary truth that Paul was defending. What was he defending? Not the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit was the proof of what? That someone is justified by faith. And so what he's saying here is, uh, just as you were justified by faith and received the Spirit, even so, what does it say about Abraham? It says this, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Now, of course, I already said Abraham is an important figure in the Bible, in the narrative of the Bible. He towers above other figures in, in, in the Bible. You know, Abraham is looked to by the world's three major religions, all monotheistic religions, 
Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all trace something of the, of the faith to this man, Abraham, Father Abraham, as he is referred to. He is the great patriarch in the Bible. And this verse, Genesis 15, that context, verse 6 there, is one of those absolute mountain peak verses in the story of the Bible. This is a mountaintop verse of importance, that along with Genesis 12 and then Genesis 17, which were all things spoken to and said about Abraham. And so I, to grasp the importance of this statement, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We need to remember, or some of you maybe for the first time understand, how does that fit into this narrative, which is the, 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 the Bible? The Bible is a story of, of, of God's redemption, God's plan of salvation. It is the story that explains all stories because it is an account of the reality in which we live and will be living in. And so the Bible, I remind you, begins like this. God is the almighty, loving creator of all things. With his glorious power, he brought all things into existence, and human beings are the crown jewel of his creation, of his work. Why? Because human beings, you and me, we are made in his image. Created in his image. Male and female, he created them, says scripture. And that means that human beings, unlike all other creatures, are designed in a unique way to have a, a, a relationship with the living God. We are designed to know him, to commune with him, to experience fellowship and a relationship with the creator. But the first humans decided to act independently of God. And that is how sin came into the world. They rebelled, and the result was the judgment of God. The result was separation from this intimacy with God, alienation from God. We do not all know God now when we are born uh, into this world physically. This is the source of human depravity. We refer to this as the fall of man. And all this led to what? It led to chaos and and, and hurt and pain and suffering and physical and spiritual death. All this is right at the beginning of the Bible. But God almost immediately in chapter 3, God almost immediately issued a, a glorious, gracious promise to our first parents. And he promised that a male descendant of the first woman at some point would come and crush the head of the enemy, the one who through his temptation and lies was instrumental in bringing about the fall of mankind. In other words, God promised there would be a deliverer and would come through the line of this woman. And Genesis goes on to trace that promised seed, that promised line. By the time we get to chapter 11, of course, I'm skipping a whole lot. <laughs> By the time we get to chapter 11, that deliverer, that promised one has not arrived on the scene. There is still nothing but chaos uh, and, and the world is divided into different people groups and so forth. And what did God do at that point? God, who could, who could justly leave us to face the consequences of our, of our rebellion, 
He continues to act on the basis of promise and grace. He extends his free and sovereign grace to a man named Abram. Later, his name was changed to Abraham. And this took place in Genesis chapter 12. He makes various promises to this man. This man, Abram, uh, was not worthy of this. This man, Abram, was a pagan. He was in Mesopotamia. He was a, a moon worshiper. But God entered into a relationship with this man. He emerges almost as another Adam on the scene, if you would. And the promises that God makes to Abraham uh, emerge as the means to the end of the plight of human beings. The promises that God makes to Abraham become the seedbed, uh, the source of hope and the plan of redemption that will extend from then on all the way to the time of Christ and into eternity. And what he promises to Abraham can be summed up this way, a, a people, a place, and his presence. He promises Abraham what? That he will have many descendants, as, much as, as many as the sands of the sea, right? uh, the seashore. He promises him a place, the land of the promised land, and so forth. And he promises his presence that he will dwell among them again. He will be their God and he will be their people. In other words, they will be his people. A recreation, uh, if you would, a restoration of what was lost in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. This is what the scripture says. And then those promises are enshrined in a visible covenant that God enters into with Abraham. He makes Abraham fall asleep and God cuts the covenant. God binds himself by oath to fulfill the promises that he has made to this man Abraham or later Abraham. But you know, many of you know the story that time goes on and Abraham gets older and older and so does his wife Sarah and they still don't have a child. When we come to Genesis 15... Abraham is struggling. He's struggling with the promise because the promise constantly seems to face impossible odds. And, and, and God wants it that way because he wants it to be clear what? That the promises that he has made to this man are going to come about miraculously by the grace of God. They're not going to be the result of Abraham's own efforts. Ultimately, Abraham made it to 99 years and Sarah 90 before they conceived. But in Genesis 15, it's a little bit before that, and he's struggling with the promise, and God comes out to him. God speaks directly to Abraham. I'm reading from Genesis 15. He takes him outside of his tent. As you know, the story says, look up at the sky, at the night sky, the twilight. He said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In other words, the harder it gets to believe this could happen, the more God magnifies the promise. He amplifies the promise. He says, your descendants will be as, much, as many as these stars. You ever been out on a camping trip, got away from the city, you get to a mountain, and it's pitch black, and then at night you see the stars. Isn't it amazing? I imagine it was a scene like that, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. At this point, he doesn't have one. <laughs> and it says, the next verse is the verse that Paul quotes, and he believed the Lord. In the Hebrew, he was believing the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
And so that's the verse that Paul is quoting when he is writing to the Galatians, speaking to them and speaking to you and me. How was uh, Abraham, uh, the father, uh, the great patriarch, uh, made right with God? He was made right with God by, uh, to quote, um, to quote uh, Dr. Harmon, by believing in the God of promise and the promise of God. By believing, trusting the veracity of God, the, God's word and his promise to him. So this is what Paul is arguing from. He's saying that the Bible doesn't have an Old Testament way of being saved and a New Testament way of being saved. Uh, that the, the law of Moses, which came about much later, was not the means of salvation, but Abraham was justified before God. How? By faith and faith alone. And Paul will later, in, in the letter to the Romans, really expand what he's saying here uh, in, uh, in Galatians. Let me read to you from Romans 4, verse 21. Well, I'll begin at verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He's talking about Abraham. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's the essence of faith. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, there's three things that stand out about this I just want to fill in, you see. Let me just say that salvation, then, has always been how? The very same way, by grace through faith in the God of promise and the promise of God. It's just that the promises regarding the Messiah get more and more details as time goes on. Abraham didn't know the Messiah or that seed was going to be uh, this individual who was Jesus of Nazareth, but he believed as much of the promise as he was given. And salvation was always, uh, has always been based on that very same basis. Now, three things stand out. First of all, the timing of this, of this event in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 takes place before Abraham is instructed to be circumcised. That takes place later in Genesis 17. And so it's abundantly clear what Paul is saying. Not only how was he justified, but when was he justified? He was justified in chapter 15, before he was ever circumcised as a mark of the covenant. Let me read again in Romans chapter 4. It's just worth hearing this. Uh, I'll read it, verse, Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Listen to Paul's logic there. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, according to his doing? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but are his due. In other words, what if he, if he did something, then it wouldn't be a gift of grace. It would just be what he earned. But he goes on to say, to the one who does not work. Listen to that very carefully. He does not work, does not seek to merit, does not seek to earn. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. 
his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, just like Abraham's. Jumping down to verse 9, he says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? He asked the question directly. He says, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And he said, goes on to say, this is so that he would be the father of all who believe, whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised. And so the timing of Genesis 15 that Paul quotes is all important. The second thing that's important is the nature of what happened. It says there that it, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Sometimes it's translated reckoned. It's, in other words, his, it was credited to him. His faith was imputed or credited to him as righteousness. And that's it. All he did was what? Believe. All that God expected of him was what? To trust what he said to him. Believe the God of promise and believe the promise of God. And that's what Abraham did. And secondly, the means of it. It was faith alone. Thirdly, excuse me, it was faith alone. Abraham believed that God and his word are reliable. He is trustworthy. He is faithful to his word. All right, so look at verse 7. Galatians 3, 7. This is the inference he draws for from that. Know then, know this, mark this, underline this, don't forget this. Think back at Abraham and know this. Here's the principle. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now the second verse he quotes is in verse 8, and he actually combines two verses, Genesis 12, the original promise, Genesis 12, 3, and Genesis 18, 18. He brings some of the wording from that verse in there. He quotes from there. He frames it this way, verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and here's the quote, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And then he draws the inference from that. Here's his inference. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, several things stand out about this, verse 8 in particular. Let, let's just, these are just a few things to note. First of all, you notice how he personifies scripture? That's interesting. The scripture is the subject of the verb. Look at verse 8. Scripture preached the gospel beforehand. Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now that's interesting because the scripture that was written about Abraham was written after Abraham's experience. And so I, the point I think that Paul is, is making, and we see a little bit of his own of his own understanding here is that what scripture says is a direct quotation of what God said to Abraham that was revealed through Moses and what Paul's conviction is this, what scripture says 
God says. That's the first thing to notice. What scripture says, God says. Because it's God's words that, are, that, that he quotes here and, and he, as coming from the scriptures. Secondly, that verb, preach the gospel beforehand. Very interesting verb. It's just one word. Preach the gospel beforehand. What, what, we, what we see what Paul is saying here is, is that the fun, there's a fundamental agreement between what? Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The gospel, the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, that was preached to Abraham in Genesis 15. Salvation has always been the same way. There wasn't an Old Testament way and a New Testament way. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. The seed of the gospel and more details have been added through time. But it was the very same message, the message of grace. Uh, this was not an innovation of Paul, in other words. Paul's saying, I did not come up with this gospel. It predates all of us. It goes back, he says, even to what? Even to the salvation of Abraham, our father. <laughs> there was no plan B in the mind of God. This is not an innovation. The gospel was preached in the old covenant with different details, and it comes to fulfillment and fruition in the new covenant. The third thing to note about that is what was foreseen what was foreseen in the gospel that was preached to Abraham? Look at verse 8. The scripture foreseeing. Here's what was foreseen and preached to Abraham in the good news that he heard. That God would justify the Gentiles by faith. There it is. That God would justify whom? People groups that are not Jews. That God's intent all along was what? To justify not only people who were uh, sons of Abraham through the flesh, through a bloodline, but to justify Gentile peoples as well. Because the distinguishing mark is faith. Faith. Not your bloodline. And so he says the, the good news that was preached and was foreseen that Abraham received was the very thing you're experiencing in Galatia. Which is what? That God is going to justify Gentile peoples, non-Jews, by faith. What's Paul getting at? He's saying, don't try and become Jews. <laughs> you don't need to go through the Jewish door to become justified and to be a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham. The scripture has always said that God's intent is to justify Gentile peoples. God's plan was to purchase a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and to do so through the cross of Jesus Christ. To make atonement for sin that would apply to anyone and to bring them to a relationship with himself by grace through faith and the merits of what Christ has done. That's always been the plan of God. That's repeated throughout the book of Genesis the prophet Isaiah refers to it on several occasions. I'll just mention one in one of the servant songs of Isaiah in Isaiah 49, verse 6. The prophet says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant 
He's speaking of the suffering servant to come, whom we know to be Jesus. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, the believing remnant. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was prophesied some five centuries before the time of Christ, or seven. And, and what do we have in, in the birth of Christ? Well, in the birth of Christ, just before uh, we get into uh, chapter three or four of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is being presented at the temple. And this man, this righteous, devout man is given an opportunity to hold him in his arms what do you say? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Picture him holding the infant Jesus. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And so this has always been the plan of God, and it's saying that that was already preached to Abraham in the very beginning. And so he draws the inference now from that in verse 9. So then, so then know this too, that those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham. What is the blessing? Justification. Abraham believed God and it, it was credited to him as righteousness. The sons of Abraham are those who have faith like Abraham and the sons of Abraham can be Gentiles because anyone could be given faith and they will receive the same blessing that Abraham received, which is what? Justification. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Maybe your translation says the believer. It doesn't say along with Abraham, the circumcised one, or along with Abraham, the Sabbath keeper, the one who obeyed the law of Moses. That law hadn't even been given. Abraham, the believer. Abraham, the man of faith. At the time of, the time of Christ and the time of Paul, Judaism uh, and the rabbinical teachings and so forth, they focused almost exclusively upon Abraham's obedience, on Abraham's faithfulness and obedience in the offering up of Isaac. Very little, next to almost nothing, was ever said or written even into the next few centuries about Abraham's faith, Genesis 15, 6. And Paul zeroes in on that. He says, that's the key verse. That's the key thing to know about Abraham. That he was justified when? When he believed the God of promise and the promise of God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Let me draw two things to your attention. First of all, the major implication of all this is what? That anyone here can be a son of Abraham. Anyone here, anyone listening, anyone can become a son of Abraham, an heir of the promise, justified, forgiven, 
and the promise of God's presence into eternity, the, the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. Anyone can become a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, be you Jew, be you Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, white or black, Hispanic, Latinos, right, Asian, what matters, educated with a PhD, uneducated, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. You could be a San Quentin level sinner or you could be a church going sinner. Religious or irreligious. Anyone can become a son of Abraham. How? By trusting, by believing the God of promise, what he says about his son Jesus, trusting and believing the promise of God. As he says in chapter 2, verse 20, I was crucified with Christ. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, right? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That you believe God, what he says about Christ and about yourself and about your sin. Believe him, trust him. You can become immediately a son of Abraham. You think about this, what this is saying. God will accept you and will only accept you. God will accept you on the basis of faith. He will take your faith in lieu of a perfectly righteous, obedient life. And he will provide what you need, the atonement for your sin and that perfect righteousness in his son, Jesus Christ, all by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited, reckoned to him, accounted to him as righteousness. That stands before every one of you here today. Are you trusting in the promise of God about Christ. If so, you, you should have received your, the spirit of God into your soul. And he'll expand what that means in chapter five. And, so, and the second thing I want you to take with you today is that listening to what Paul says here, reading what Paul says here, we're also taught something extremely important. And that is how we are to read our Bible. These uh, Judaizers were not reading the Bible correctly. They were not reading the law of Moses correctly. They were not understanding their scriptures correctly. Read the Bible how? Read the Bible as a book of promise. It is the revelation of the promise of God, his plan of redemption. The Bible is not a collection of morals. It's not a collection of, of ethics. It's not a, a collection of any other sort of things, of how to succeed at this or that. It contains all of it, doesn't it? The Bible contains law. It contains a commandment. It contains ethics, morals, etc. But all those are subsumed, subsumed as part of what? As part of a great promise of redemption. Learn to read the Bible as a book of promise centered on the person of promise who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire scriptures has one message and that is the promise of God 
that reaches its fulfillment in the person of Christ in the New Testament. All the strands of promise that we have in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in the person and the life of Jesus Christ. I find that so many people, they struggle with the scriptures because they read it as a book of law, a book of demands. How do you respond to demands with performance? No one will be justified by works. And so you become hopeless. If you keep reading the Bible from that perspective, you will become hopeless or you might be ashamed in your soul because you know you don't measure up to it and you think that's the whole point of this. Or the other extreme, we've already touched on this. In your hubris, in your pride, you actually think you are measuring up. <laughs> and you start looking down at other people as if somehow you're better. Learn to read the Bible as what it is, the book of promise, a document of the promise of God, the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus. And this is important, extremely important, because it's not only how you begin the Christian life, but in this pilgrimage, this journey of life in this fallen, broken, chaotic world in which we live as Christians, we continue to live by faith. We sang it. We walk by faith and not by sight. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Faith in God. Faith in his promises and so forth. When you drift from the life of faith and move into this life of performance, you begin to think that the, your future is in the hands of your doing, your performance. You begin to think that your identity is found in your abilities, your accomplishments, how good you've become, how much better you're doing this year. But your identity and your future do not hinge upon what you can accomplish in your own strength. They hinge on what? They hinge on the promises of God and his faithfulness. He is able to do it. He's able to sustain you. He is able to strengthen you. He's able to illumine you. He's able to provide for you. Your future hinges on God's veracity and his truthfulness and his character and so forth. And so learn to read the Bible as a book of promise. Your future hinges on what God can do and will do. Uh, you know, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But he had to go through a whole lot. He never even really saw the fruition of many of the promises of God. That's what the book of Hebrews says. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. You ever feel like that? <laughs> I don't know where I'm going, but I'm getting this idea the scripture's telling me that I should live a certain way, and so I'm going that way, but I don't know where it's all going to end. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, because it was yet to be. <laughs> it was a foreign land to him living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with the, him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since he, she considered him faithful who had promised. Oh, she had her moments, didn't she? <laughs> At one point, she laughed and giggled when they said, next year you'll have a boy. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, he was almost 100, were born descendants 
as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And listen to this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. And then Abraham lived, lived by believing in that very same God of promise and the promises of God. As one, as one book title says, he lived in the gap between promise and reality. Now we still live in a gap like that, don't we? We live in the gap of promise Though much has come to be in the life of Christ, there is still much yet to be fulfilled. And in this pilgrimage of this life and this fallen, broken world and your struggles with yourself, your struggles with your sin, your temptation, your struggles with wealth or lack of wealth, your struggles in relationships, your struggle with your careers and so forth, we can easily, easily get off the path of faith and begin to think and operate as if our future hinges on our own capacities when really they hinge upon God and his faithfulness. I want to end this way. I want to quote from uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress again uh, in that uh, allegory in which John Bunyan wrote of that key figure, uh, Christian, who was on the way to the celestial city. There were many ups and downs in his journey and having just escaped persecution at a Vanity Fair, Christian uh, got together with a man named Hopeful. If you can have a friend named Hopeful, that's a great thing. <laughs> he was just beat up, persecuted, and he and Hopeful were walking together and seeking to, ex seeking to find an easier path. They ended up being caught by a giant named Despair, and he drugged them into his castle, which was called what? Doubting Castle. It says here, the giant said to them, you are trespassing on my grounds, and therefore you must come along with me. And so they were forced to go with him because he was stronger than they, and the pilgrims had but little to say. They knew themselves, they knew themselves to be at fault the giant therefore drove them before him and put them into a very dark, nasty, stinking dungeon of his castle. And here they lay from Wednesday through morning through Saturday night without one bit of bread or drop of water or light or anyone to help them. They were in a dreadful state, being far from friends and assistants. Now in this place, Christian had a double sorrow. Why? For it was through his ill-advised counsel that they were brought into this distress, right? Looking for an easier way than walking with Christ. Working, looking for an easier way than trusting in his sufficiency and staying on the narrow path. They found themselves in this place of despair and doubt it was because of their own choice, you see, their own life decisions. Bunyan goes on to say that, that uh, this giant would come into the room and he would beat them physically until they were becoming hopeless. 
he had a very encouraging wife named Distrust. <laughs> and she would say to them, where are these guys from? Or where are they on their way? They're on their way to the celestial city. I'll tell you what you do. You go down there and you beat them into a pulp and then you tell them, how do you want to live like this? Can you live like this? Why don't you just take your own life? Despair is a t powerful thing. This went on day after day. Bunyan writes and says they continued together in their sad and, and doleful condition and towards evening, the giant went down into the dungeon again to see if his prisoners had taken his advice. But when he arrived there, he found them still living, barely alive, though, for they lacked bread and water. Because of the wounds they received when he beat them, they could do little more than breathe. Seeing that they were still alive, giant despair fell into a furious rage. He told them that since he had, they had not taken his advice, it would now be worse with, the, with them than if they had never been born. Despair can take us to that place, huh? To actually begin thinking, why was I even born? Well, it went on. Finally, the last night, it says about midnight, the pilgrims began to pray and continued in, pray, in prayer until almost the break of day. And then Christian, half bewildered, broke out into this passionate speech. What a fool I've been to thus lie in this stinking dungeon when I could have been free. I have a key called promise. A key called promise in my bosom, which I am persuaded will open any lock in Doubting Castle. <laughs> Hopeful replied, that's good news, brother. Pluck it out of your bosom and let's try it. In an old English way, right? <laughs> this is modern me. And then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and tried to unlock the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt drew back and the door flew open. Christian and Hopeful quickly came out of the dungeon and went to the outer door, which led into the castle yard. Using his key, Christian was able to open that door also. Next, they went to the iron gate of the castle, which also needed to be unlocked. And though this lock was very difficult to turn, it's hard to climb out sometimes. It's hard to regain hope sometimes, especially when it's because where you, you found yourself where you found yourself because you walked off the narrow path. Nevertheless, the key of promise opened that gate as well. They pushed the gate open to make a quick escape, but the gate as it opened made such a creaking sound that it awakened giant despair, right? One last chance. <laughs> Hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, the giant fell into one of his fits and fell and felt his limbs fail him, and so he was unable to go after them, and the pilgrims found their way back, back to the king's highway, and so they were safe, being out of giant despair's jurisdiction. You know, despair has a lot of power in our lives because we fail to read the Bible as a book of promise and stop trusting the God of promise and the promise of God. God, to nourish our faith, brings us to the Lord's Supper.
who are here today to participate in communion, to be nourished with the promise that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, and his promise to dwell in us and among us remains with us from here to the end. Let's pray as we prepare for the Lord's table. Sons of Abraham, heirs of the promise, Lord, what a, what a glorious thought. It gets so crowded out, Lord, crowded out by the culture, crowded out by despair, by hopelessness, by the troubles of our life, by the lack of listening to you, the lack of hearing and your promise in our soul. Lord, please nourish us as we come to the table in a few moments, prepare our hearts for this communion with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would, by your promise, which is visible in these elements, Lord, you would lift up people's hearts. And Lord, that you would bring many, Lord, who are still not on the king's highway because they have yet, yet to trust and believe the God of promise and the promise of God. Bring them to faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.